And I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, the first of two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in a place called Corinth. If you don't know where that is, just feel free to use your table of contents. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use the one there in the rack in front of you. First four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you've got a big book called Acts, another big book called Romans, and then you come to 1 Corinthians. And let me give you a question to ponder here. I want you to think for a minute about your reputation. Which of the following reputations would you prefer to have? Would you rather be considered smart or stupid? Would you like to be known as a sharp thinker or as a dull dimwit? These are tough choices, yes. Would you prefer that other people, when they describe you, would describe you as a very wise person or as a hopeless fool? Well, if you would like the reputation of being smart, sharp, and wise... I have to break it to you, you're going about it all wrong. See, by being here on a Sunday morning when you could be sleeping in or just relaxing, maybe even out playing a round of golf, by being here to hear a message from the Bible, you have demonstrated a considerable lack of good judgment as far as our world is concerned. Because in our world today, being a believer in the God of the Bible is not likely to earn you a reputation for brilliance. Our society has become more and more like the society into which the Christian message was first introduced. And that was a society that by and large regarded that message as fit only for fools. And we're becoming a lot more like that as a society. So the question is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, or you're considering becoming one, are you okay with being considered a fool? Are you content with that? You content with uh, being a fool at school? You, uh, you okay with being a fool among your coworkers? You okay with being the fool of your neighborhood, kind of like the village idiot? It really is an important question, actually. It really is, because how you answer it is one of those tests that indicate whether you're more of a follower of Jesus or whether you're just kind of a fan of Jesus. Um... And it's not really a new question either. Um, In fact, that's why we're going to be looking in 1 Corinthians because uh, that's where the Bible pretty much raises that question for us. Are you content with being a fool? Uh, The Apostle Paul writing to some people who had become believers in Jesus in the city of Corinth, which is part of what's now modern-day Greece. And Corinth was a very happening place. It was very trendy. Lots of hipsters in Corinth. And um, 
very sophisticated in terms of philosophy. And the Christians who lived there, well, they wanted to fit in. They wanted to be sophisticated, too, you know, and, and that is totally understandable. I mean, most people, we want to fit in, right? We want to be at least accepted and even admired. Most of us want that. But see, now, for fans of Jesus, it's, it's really kind of a big deal. Fans don't want to be thought of as fools. They don't really want that reputation. So these Christians in Corinth were beginning to think that the Christian message, well, it just kind of needed, you know, updating. I thought maybe they should just sort of downplay the whole, you know, Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead thing. Uh, Because those ideas were really not socially acceptable. And just in order to be more with it, in, in order to be more socially acceptable, in order... Uh, to increase the acceptability of their message. These Christians were thinking that they just maybe needed to upgrade the message, make it just sound more profound. Now, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have sat in a classroom, or maybe you've been uh, reading an article online, or even been involved in an online discussion. You read the article, you see the comments afterwards, or... Maybe you've been involved in a conversation where basically the message of Jesus was ridiculed, made fun of. And if you've ever been a part of a situation like that, you know, you know the temptation to try to make the message sound more acceptable, more consistent with, more... Uh, in agreement with human wisdom. But I want to tell you, that's a big mistake. It's a big mistake because the wisdom of man and the message of Christ do not mix. They just don't mix. And rather than try to accommodate human wisdom... Here is the smartest thing you can do. The smartest thing you can do is just go ahead and be a fool in the world's eyes. Be foolish enough to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and follow him. That's smart. Because that foolish gospel is your only hope. That foolish gospel is your only hope. Now, of course, the gospel really isn't foolish. It's just that many people think it is. Many people think you have to be a fool in order to believe the message of Jesus, in order to follow him. Um, But I want to show you why being that kind of fool is your only hope. Okay, Why, Why God's foolish gospel is your only hope. All right, here's, here's one reason. It's your only hope for knowing God. It is your only hope. The gospel is your only hope for knowing God. You can't really know God 
apart from the gospel of Jesus. Now, even just to say that, we'll get some people feeling defensive and upset, and that's why it's considered foolish. But it's your only hope for knowing God. Let's take a look now. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. There's a note sheet in your folder if you haven't found it yet. Haul that out. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, now he's going to quote from the Old Testament. This is God speaking. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. To save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So Paul says that the world through its wisdom, did not know God, did not come to know God. All right, what's he saying? What's the wisdom of the world? Well, in a nutshell, the wisdom of the world means humanity's best guesses. That's the wisdom of the world, humanity's best guesses. Best guesses about who we are, where we come from, uh, what our purpose is, why we're here, why is there something instead of nothing, and why are we a part of that? So the wisdom of the world is basically human speculation. Humanity speculating apart from any uh, help from God. Now here's the problem with that. No matter how brilliant the speculation is, and this world has produced some brilliant thinkers, but no matter how brilliant the speculation, no amount of speculating has ever brought anyone to a genuine knowledge of God. It can't. And here's the reason. God cannot be known by human discovery. Not really. God cannot be known personally by human discovery, by what we can figure out. You know, some people will say, well, you know, God can't be real. He can't be real because we can't detect. We can't detect, we can't measure his existence with our senses, with scientific instruments. But see, that, that's like saying, that, that's like trying to read somebody's mind with a stethoscope. Okay, you know what a stethoscope is? You, you go to the doctor, they have that thing, and they put it in their ears, and they put it on your chest, and they listen to your heart and lungs. Okay, have you ever gone to the doctor, and the doctor says, now, don't tell me what's wrong. I'm just going to put the stethoscope on your head, and I'm going to read your thoughts. Anybody? Has that ever happened? Okay, why not? Does that mean you don't have any thoughts? No. It just means your thoughts are not discoverable by that method by that instrument. Uh, 
okay? You can't detect human thoughts. You can't understand them that way. In fact, the only way you'll know my thoughts is if I tell you. That's the only way you can know. Well, the God of the Bible tells us that He is spirit and He is infinite. Now, if that is true, then that means we don't have the instruments to detect Him and measure Him. And we never will. If we're going to know Him, He has to tell us who He is. And see, that is exactly the claim of the Bible. Over and over and over again. You know, thus says the Lord. That these are God's thoughts. And He's telling us His thoughts through His spokespeople. So the claim of the Bible, that's what Paul's claiming here in 1 Corinthians. He's saying the true God can be known. Well, how can He be known? Verse 21, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It is by believing what God has revealed, by, re- by believing the message He has made known and He has caused to be proclaimed. It is by believing what God has revealed, not by what man has discovered, that we come to know God. Now, people are able to discover a lot of great things. And I'm not saying anything bad about that. But you can't come to know God that way. You come to know God by believing what He has revealed about Himself. But what God has revealed can be very hard to believe. God's message to this world sounds so foolish. Verse 18 calls it the message of the cross. The message of the cross. Scott Heffley, would you raise that screen for a minute? And you turn on those lights. Yeah. Okay, you see that thing up there? Now, how many of you think that's kind of pretty? It's sort of a beautiful decoration. I'm not raising my hand. I'm getting in trouble. But see, that's kind of how we think. We've, we've grown accustomed to think of the cross as this thing we put on the wall and we look at and it's pretty or we put one on a chain and hang it around our necks and it's a decoration people in the first century would look at that and be appalled that is an instrument of execution why in the world would you hang it on the wall you can lower that now scott thank you the message of the cross verse 23 says we preach christ crucified Here's the message. God became man in Jesus Christ. And this God-man allowed himself to be put to death in an absolutely gruesome manner because it was the only way to buy the pardon for our sins and connect us to himself. And this God-man who died three days later rose from the dead told his followers to proclaim his message of deliverance to the whole world until he comes again as victorious king and rights every wrong. That is quite a story. And here's the thing. No human 
wise man, no scholar, no PhD would ever have concocted such a message. By the standards of man's wisdom, the whole thing is ludicrous. Ludicrous now, ludicrous when Paul wrote this. You know, sometimes people say this. We kind of have this arrogance about history, and we think that people in the old days, you know, they were just a lot more gullible. They just believed stuff like this without proof. Not really. Not really. You know, verse 22, Paul says, Jews demand miraculous sign, Greeks look for wisdom. They weren't, a lot of them weren't buying it. They were not simply rolling over and going, oh, really? God became a man, died on a cross? Well, oh, sure, I'll believe that. The Jews wanted proof. They wanted miracles, not the kind Jesus did. They wanted Egyptian plague kind Moses, you know, get the, get the Romans, get them out of town, smite them. The, the Greeks wanted wisdom as they defined it. They figured if God ever did show up, he would be the most brilliant, eloquent philosopher who ever lived. But Paul says, oh no, nope, we preach Christ, we preach Messiah, we preach God become man dying on a cross. Are you kidding me? We preach the God-man put to death to deliver us from sin and death. In other words, we preach a God who defies human expectation. The message of the gospel was a scandal to Judaism. How could the majestic God of Abraham become a man and die cursed on a tree? To the Greeks, the gospel was madness. How would a God, why would a God ever let himself be put to death by mere mortals? And you hear the same kind of complaints from people today. You know, if God is real, why, why doesn't he do this? If God is real, why in the world would he do that? Why would a God who's good and powerful allow human suffering? Why, uh, how could a God of love condemn anyone? How can anyone believe that a man who lived 2,000 years ago could possibly be the answer to the world's problems? Now, here's the crucial thing to get here. The cross is not considered foolish because it contradicts the facts of history or because it violates laws of logic or because there's no evidence for it. Now, people will say that, but that's not really why the gospel is considered foolish because uh, it does not contradict the facts of history, it does not violate the laws of logic, and there actually is considerable evidence for it. That's not why it's regarded as foolish. It's regarded as foolish because it contradicts man's way of doing things. We wouldn't have done it that way. And it denies our ability to solve our biggest problems and satisfy our deepest needs. It rejects, the cross rejects our competence to decide for ourselves what is good. 
See, it's, it's, it's very offensive to human wisdom. It, the gospel essentially says that without God, we are ultimately helpless. And people hate that. They hate that thought. See, if somebody tells you that you're such a helpless sinner, you're such a helpless sinner that, that God had to become man and die for you, your sin is so bad, it took the death of Jesus on the cross to purchase your pardon and to bridge the gap between God's incredible holiness and your sinfulness. Somebody tells you that, there's only one way you're not going to be offended by that. And that's if you're foolish enough to believe it. Because it happens to be the truth. God's foolish message is your only hope for knowing God. Here's another reason why God's foolish gospel is your only hope. It's your only hope for being included. It's your only hope for being included. Verse 26. Brothers, now he's writing to fellow Christians. They call themselves that, brothers and sisters. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Have you ever been through that painful playground ritual? I don't even know if they let kids do this anymore. If they don't, that's probably a good thing. Choosing up sides for a game. You ever do that? You know, two, you appoint two captains and then they choose. And if it's a game based on any kind of athletic ability, if we're talking basketball or football or anything like this, it was very painful. At least it was for those of us who lacked athletic ability and always got picked last. And no, just because I'm 6'4 doesn't mean I can play basketball. <laughs> I can remember one time. I, it just sticks in my memory. It wasn't me, but it was someone else. And the two captains picked their team, you know, and there were even number of kids. So there was one kid last for the last captain, got the last pick. And he looked at the kid and he said, you guys can have him, we don't want him. That used to happen a lot. Basically, the world says you only get picked, you only get included if you meet certain standards. So you've got to uh, be smart enough or beautiful enough or athletic enough or rich enough or whatever. So people are always striving to make themselves smarter, more athletic, stronger, better looking, richer. Here's the problem. If you don't make the standard, you're tempted to despair. And if you do make the standard, you're tempted to be arrogant which is exactly why God doesn't pick his team that way. 
if we could make ourselves right with God, if we could earn His favor, if we could gain His approval by our own merits, if we could say, yes, I'm good enough for God, you know what we do? We wouldn't worship Him, we'd worship us. So even though Christianity cuts across all social boundaries, it does, the gospel does. Now sometimes people who say they believe the gospel don't go across social boundaries, but the gospel does. Even though it cuts across social lines, most believers throughout history have been common, ordinary people without power, without brilliance, without wealth, many of them without freedom. Or, as Paul puts it, not many wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. I had to smile when I read that because even though he's being polite, really what he's saying is, most of you people are losers (laughs) in the world's eyes. So don't start getting all impressed with yourselves. Now, it's not that God can't or that God doesn't save the rich and the beautiful and the powerful. It's just that so many of them don't think they need saving. But whether we're rich or poor, whether we're plain or beautiful, whether we're weak or we're strong, God saves us not by our merit, but by His grace. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. It is not because of you. It is because of Him. And when you understand that, that is the most liberating thing. God, no, nobody can say, God chose me because I'm so wonderful. Nobody. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God saves the unlovely? Because we all have an unlovely side. We really do. Only the foolish gospel of grace enables us to be included on God's team. One more. God's foolish gospel is your only hope because it's your only hope for experiencing God's power to change you. It is your only hope for experiencing God's power to change you. And yes, you need changing. And so do I. Look what Paul says, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the message. I came to you in weakness and fear. This is Paul the Apostle talking. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. How does the gospel message change people's lives? How does that happen? How how does it transform us from unforgiven to forgiven? How does it change us from hopeless to full of hope? How does it change us from selfish 
to loving, from possessive to giving, from self-centered to God-centered. How does the message of the gospel accomplish that? Well, see, the Corinthians had fallen into a trap. They started thinking that the effectiveness of the message depended on the effectiveness of the messenger. So, in other words, whether the message actually impacted anybody's life or not depended on how skillful the speaker was, how, how powerful, how entertaining, how enjoyable, how eloquent. And we can fall into the exact same trap We start to think that the only way people are going to believe our message is if we say it just right. And if we convince them with all kinds of powerful arguments. And we start thinking that making a difference and changing people's lives and transforming the world is mainly about how effective, how convincing, how eloquent, how skillful we are. And Paul says, no. The power is not in the eloquence of the speaker or in any other skill we possess. The power is in God and His Word. God's Spirit uses God's message to change people's lives. God's Spirit uses God's message to change people's lives. See, the problem with focusing on human skill is it produces self-reliance, okay? I don't know what your greatest abilities are. Maybe think for yourself, you know, don't blurt it out loud. Nobody wants to think you're arrogant. But think about your greatest skills, your greatest abilities for a minute, okay? Those are your greatest danger because you can start to think that it's your abilities that accomplish things for God. See, God gave you those abilities, and God uses those abilities. I'm not saying He doesn't. But the decisive difference in actually changing people's lives is always Him. It's not us. Because He doesn't want people ultimately relying on people. He wants us relying on Him. Now, I've been doing what I do for over 30 years now. Okay, so I've been preparing and speaking Bible messages for over 30 years. And somewhere back then, I figured out, I eventually figured out that the most eloquent sermon in the world will not accomplish one single thing for eternity unless it's God's message empowered by God's Spirit. Now, I've had people come up to me and say, that was a a great message, that was powerful, that was really great. And I'm glad. I like that. Feel free, you know, anytime. (laughs) But what does that mean? What does that mean when somebody says, that was a wonderful sermon? You know what it means? It means they liked it. I'm glad. I'm glad they liked it. I prefer that to the other alternative. Was it effective? Will it make a difference? Will their life actually change? Will they become a little bit more like Jesus because of it? Only time will tell. Only time will tell if God will actually use that word 
by the power of his spirit to bring about the change he wants to bring in our lives. Because it's not about eloquence. It's not about, you know, entertainment. It's not about my persuasiveness, my forcefulness, or yours. No human skill can do the job. This is why we pray, folks. This is why we, 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 we proclaim and quote this book. Because the power is God's power to change people's lives. Only God's Word, empowered by God's Spirit, has the power to set people free and change their lives. You know, Paul, hey, Paul the Apostle, he felt like a very weak preacher. And yet God used him to bring thousands of people to new life in Christ. God uses the weak so that people will rely on him and not on themselves. Do you feel weak today? Do you feel just lame? Do you just feel like you're not eloquent enough, you're not skillful enough, you're just, you're kind of a mess? Well, then you're a perfect candidate for God using you. Perfect. Now I want to just insert something really quick here because this, this could be misunderstood. You hear me emphasizing, you know, we just need the gospel, we need to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Spirit, okay? That's not saying, okay, that's not saying that there aren't people who don't really understand the gospel and that they don't need, you know, some good evidence, some good arguments. That, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we don't change the essence of the message. Christ crucified. The God become man, dying on a cross, rising from the dead. That's our only hope. Now, if it takes some gentle persuasion to help people understand what the message really is and not the many caricatures of it that are flying around in our world, okay, good. But it's the message of Jesus that they've got to hear. So the question for you, the question for me, are you content to be a fool? Are you foolish enough to trust God, his crazy methods, his upside-down standards, his, his incomprehensible, it just doesn't make sense to be message? Let's face it, people, if God had consulted with us, we would not have suggested that he do it this way. And every single day, we have to choose whose wisdom we're going to live by. Okay, you live by the wisdom of this book, you are going to stand out. You're going to look weird. But we have to choose. Whose wisdom are we going to live by? The wisdom of the creature or the wisdom of the creator? You're going to try to do what looks impressive. You're going to try to look wise to the world. You're going to modify the gospel of a crucified Messiah to make it more palatable to human expectations? Or are you going to say, I'm just going to trust God no matter how silly it makes me look. I'm going to just trust God no matter how foolish others think I am. I am willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. I'm going to follow him regardless of what anybody else says. Will you say along with Paul in Romans 1.16, I am am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Will you pray with me? Will you just close your eyes along with me? And if you would say that, if you would say, 
Yes, I'm willing to be a fool for Jesus. I am willing to follow him no matter what anybody says. I am willing to share his message no matter how foolish people think I am. I'm willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. If you would say that, will you just raise your hand, just with your eyes closed, raise your hand and say, yes, I'm willing to be that fool. Father in heaven, I so enjoy the admiration of people. I so want to be thought of as wise and smart and intelligent. And yet, wanting that reputation and being faithful to you are often in conflict. Father, will you give us the courage to stay true to you? to follow Jesus, not to pretend that we're perfect because we're not, not to try to impress people with who we are, but to simply point people to who you are. And Father, if there's anyone here today who has yet to take that step of saying yes to you, yes to your foolish gospel, yes to Jesus dying on the cross is our only hope and rising from the dead to give us life, I pray that today will be the day that they understand that your gospel is your power for their salvation if they'll believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.